Bloke and the Bird show. You know, this week, because it's everywhere, are you feeling the Olympic spirit? No. Yeah, I'm kind of not. I'm just not into the summer games. It just doesn't do it for me. I like the winter games. Well, I think that we've made a fundamental flaw. We had a fundamental basic mistake that we aired in the process. Okay, which, which process is that? We failed to watch the opening ceremonies. Well, true. We and this is the first time in any Olympic year that we have failed to watch the opening ceremonies. Well, if we really wanted, though, we could. And we have learned that, that much like a lot of sports coverage we seem to get lately, that probably the best coverage, the, the coverage that would have worked best for us might have been the BBC's coverage. And yeah. we could have downloaded, but I didn't. So, because as you recall, was it, yeah, it was. It was the London coverage. We were in Niagara Falls for and we watched it that way. Is that the way we did that? Yeah, we, wa- we watched actually both ceremonies from the BBC off of BBC iPlayer because there was no commercials. And as we found, there was a whole lot less stupid commentary. Well, that was definitely important. (laughs) But I think that one of the things that have made me less engaged in this year's games is the fact that we didn't make a point to watch the opening ceremonies, which is truly the first time in almost 20 years that we have not watched the opening ceremonies. Um, And I think that that sets the stage. It really sets the stage for what's going on. And then, quite frankly, we haven't watched a lot of what's going on. Just from either being busy or watching something else or yeah. being in a binge-watching mode of something else. Well, we were still all over Arrow, so that was what it was. Well, yeah, but we now have to figure out how we're going to get two seasons of Arrow that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. So let's talk about Formula One, and then here's what we're going to do this week. We don't have a lot of Formula One stuff going on because the truth is right now, for as much as for the teams, this is a much needed and very welcome break. For Formula One fans, this is the mid-season doldrums. It truly is. I it mean, is. we're we're at summer break, and I get the need for especially the teams to to get a couple of weeks off where they can completely disengage and not have to worry about everything, especially in the season that is this long. To to get that time off, but still, as a fan. This kind of sucks. Well, you, you think it sucks as a fan. Try to be a reporter for F1. Have yeah. you seen the number of articles that we would qualify as you got paid to write that? There's a whole lot of them, or worse, the sites that um, they're not officially reporters, but they just randomly come up with stupid things to post because there's nothing else to put up there. Right. But there was a little bit of news this week. There was news. Yes. Um, first off... We got word as to what's happening with Rio Harianto's seat. Yes. Um, I don't think it's a huge, as much as his management wanted us to think otherwise, I don't think it was a huge surprise that Rio actually ended up not managing to secure the remaining amount of funding needed to retain his seat. And as a result, he has been told that um, his services as a primary driver will not be required. Okay. But what's interesting, he hasn't been fully released by the team. No, he picked up being their reserve driver. He's their reserve driver, which means Manor now has two reserve drivers because Manor has also come out and said that Alexander Rossi is also still a reserve driver for them this season. But keep in mind, we, as we you know, pointed out last week, 
Alexander Rossi's dance card's a little full till October. It is. Um, now, I believe it's it, the, the number that came out of how much um, he fell short was $7 million. I believe it was about that. Mm-hmm. It was about half of what he needed to make it through the season. But amazingly, just the right amount to become a reserve driver. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure. It may have been that he, he came forward with some money, and they decided they didn't want to completely let him go. But but I can't imagine how they're going to use two reserve drivers. Well, I don't think they're actually using Alexander Rossi right now. Not to a whole lot. So taking his place will be Esteban Ocon, who— this is going to be some really good – assuming he is good with car feedback, and we don't know. Mm-hmm. But assuming he is really good with car feedback, this is an incredible opportunity for him because he's driven to Renault cars. Right. He is in the Mercedes program on loan to Renault and technically Renault's reserve driver. But he's participated in, in the young driver tests for Renault and also for Mercedes. For the works team. Right. So he's got the experience of now, he's about to have the experience in three different Formula One chassis and two different engines, one of which is the top of the field. Right. Talk about some good comparison and contrast. If he's good on car feedback, we don't know. Oh, that should be very interesting. And I kind of wonder, and this is total speculation, and it's something I just have to kind of think through you got to kind of wonder what the non-compete information is i mean it would seem to me that no team would necessarily want to have a driver that has driven for them that knows their secret sauce or some portion of their secret sauce to ever then be able to drive for somebody else well and bring that secret sauce over the the provisions are a little – I mean, for the technical folks, typically that clause is you can't you, – you've got to be on gardening leave, essentially, is what they call it, mm-hmm. for a set period of time. So that because the, at that point, the, the modifications and the changes have happened. And because there is some level of general knowledge and expertise that you still need to work in the industry. Right. But I think for the drivers, since from a technical perspective – the teams probably get more from the techni- a, a better understanding of the technical workings of the car from pictures mm. than they do from what the driver can do because the driver isn't putting together the machine. But what the driver probably can do and can provide is, you know, in low-speed corners, they tend to fishtail a little bit, and, you know, they're more prone to understeer in this kind of a setup than in that. That kind of information they can provide, and I don't know how you stop that. I don't think you can stop that. Yeah, it, it's, it's just an interesting <clears throat> thought in terms of – You've got a driver that within one season has driven for, ultimately is going to drive for three separate teams. Yeah. And that comes with some interesting cross-team competitive knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll be fairly interesting to watch what happens to his career. And where does Ocon actually ultimately go? That That's, I think, the real question. I, I suspect that it, it most likely... Given the way driver, given driver lineups being what they are, 
he's probably going to go to Reno. Mm. Or if somebody ends up being the next Reno Jr. team. But that that's my suspicion is that's where he's going to be headed. So then that leaves the question of, well, what of Alexander Rossi? Your friend Alexander and Ro- Alexander Rossi. He is my bud. Yeah, he is. You guys go way back. You yeah. know, at least about three weeks. Hey. <laughs> well, word has come out from the Rossi camp that um, he is having discussions about a full-time 2017 deal, not just with Manor, but possibly with another Formula One team. Although Andretti, who he currently drives for in IndyCar, has an interest in, in him as well. I can't imagine why Andretti would have an interest in him, seeing as though he was a rookie who won the Indianapolis 500. Yeah, and and he says that there's also other options in IndyCar that he cannot elaborate on at this time. What he will say is that everyone at Andretti is aligned and working in good faith to extend our deal for several years. <coughs> There is a sense of loyalty to Michael Andretti, his team, and Honda. As a driver, there are some really good opportunities here, and the competition is fantastic. Well, also keep in mind, not only did he just win the 500, mm-hmm. but he's also in line and probably a guarant- the guaranteed rookie of the year. Yes. And so, of course, he's going to have lots of opportunity in IndyCar. <coughs> I'm sure that he is gaining popularity because he's kind of started out of the gate with this giant boom. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. I mean, you you get your name right on the map there. Yeah. And quite frankly, he also has a superb logo on his (laughs) T-shirt. I'm just saying that that, I think, is a big boon to his career. Now, the thing is, I do know from the interviews that we've we've had, had watched with him in him that his heart's in Formula One. I mean, this kid, when he was a kid in karting, he moved to Europe strictly, strictly, let me try this in English, strictly to target being on the Formula yeah, to, One to, to get into that, that, that uh, assembly line, essentially. Right. Now, what he has said is um, the priority and, and the, the true reason why he did not accept the seat because he said Manor offered him the seat for the rest of the season was because the IndyCar campaign is taking priority. Right. That's why. But what he went on to say is that my management and I are in constant communications with Manor and we knew there might be an opportunity to race for the last half of the 2016 season. We gave it careful thought but declined the race seat due to my IndyCar contract. I have a lot of respect for Manor giving us first right on the seat as we agreed. Mm. I have a really good relationship with Manor, and there are no hard feelings. They understand an F1 deal has to be right for my future, and my career has taken some good steps forward. Wow. Well, I mean, I think that that's a very good thing. For, that He sounds like he's very self-aware. Yeah. But I think it, he would have been foolish to have – stepped away from Rookie of the Year and this incredible IndyCar season that he's having to take a back marker team in F1, even though it's F1. Yeah. I think that he's very right. F1 may still be on the table for him, but it's still got to be the right opportunity. Well, there's also the question of if he grabs Rookie of the Year and and he successfully pulls that off, and again, it certainly looks like he will, 
what kind of impact does that have on his prospects, whether to remain in IndyCar, where he's got some success, or to move back into Formula One, where he now has behind him not only Rookie of the Year in IndyCar, but also Indy 500 winner, and hey, I'm the first Indy 500 winner in how many years who has who is campaigning in Formula One. Both of those have some pretty good cachet around them. Oh, yeah. And it's not like one of the other people that did transition successfully between Formula One and IndyCar doesn't also have a piece of that. I mean, that's Mario Andretti. Yeah, and and Mario may have been the last time that there was about. I I don't know how, I don't know enough about Mario's career, mm-hmm. um, kind of deliberately. But I don't know enough about Mario's career to to know how that has happened. Now there was the time when Indianapolis was a regular stop, and the Indy 500 was a regular stop for Formula One teams, even if it was not necessarily part of the Formula One championship. Right. So I think more to come. I think Alexandra Rossi I would put under the category of someone to watch. Yeah. So somebody else would like us to watch them. Yeah, okay. They're trying really hard. They're standing over in a corner going, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. We just got money. That'd be Salvi. Oh. <laughs> They've mismanaged it so many times that you kind of start wanting to willfully forget them. <gasps> yeah, well. So Manisha Keltenborn has been talking to the press again. Oh, no. Well, what she says now is that, you know, she's talking about their their focus for the rest of the season now, that they have secured the funding, the team's been sold, and for the future. And what she says is, you know— th- their focus now is to get back to business as normal, as opposed to business how it w- as it was, which was we just need to figure out where we're going to get the money to keep the lights on. Now they're actually working on, you know, they haven't bothered to, to develop this, this year's car, and, and they're not going to really do that. But it's going to be towards 2017. I have a question. Okay. Where exactly are we measuring normal? Are we measuring normal based on this season where we – scrounge couch cushions to keep the lights on are we measuring normal based on last year's season where we scrounged couch cushions to keep the lights on or perhaps when we tried to sell two seats to four drivers what normal are we talking about because in the entire history that we have watched formula one sauber has had money problems i don't know this normal she is talking about they have had money problems, but they have been particularly acute in the last two years to the point that this year they didn't do anything with the car because they were just more concerned with keeping the lights on. In previous years, there was in-season development work and testing and driver development that had been going on. So they're going to be doing that again. Okay, they so may still be struggling normal. for money. And you know, one of the things that's been said is that now that they have – sold the team and they have worked out at least a somewhat steady source of funding now she's actually trying to find a title sponsor ah now i don't know if there's going to be a title sponsor who's really going to be interested right now until they actually do something but that that is they say their next goal is a title sponsor when it comes to funding and they're actually going to start working on next year's car but manisha also says that at this point, given what their situation is, there are no excuses for next year not to be a good year. 
Now, to be clear, she is not saying <laughs> that we have the third best car on the grid or they're going to have the third best car on the grid and be the next one to take a championship after Mercedes. She She's is not, not Ron saying Dennis. That. Correct. What she is saying is what they are targeting as a good year is for them to be in the mid-pack getting points. Not dicing for race wins or anything like that, but to be in the pack getting points. And I think that's fair. Well, I think that that would be them punching at their weight as opposed to currently where they're punching way below their weight. Yeah. Um, now, <clears throat> I, I, I did have a proposal if this finance deal did not go through that would solve some of Sauber's problems, money okay. problems. Perhaps Monisha should become a paid uh, director, race uh, principal, team principal, as opposed to a pay, she should become a paying team principal uh, versus a paid team principal. I was wondering where you're going to go. So, so just like a driver who has to pay for their seat, she should pay for her job. She should pay for her job. She should get sponsorship <laughs> and pay for her job. I, I, I feel that her salary is an unnecessary drain on Sauber's finances. Wow. Okay. No. That, can, that's kind of harsh. It is, and I get that. But can you tell me something that she has brought to Sauber that is positive? Okay. Before we go any further, I think this is important to, to, to get out of the way. That's Tim Taylor, care of Tool Time. P.O. Box 3273. Monisha, please send your letters that way. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to tell you where I come from on this Monisha thing. The problem is that when she was named team principal, I was ecstatic. Here we had someone that, by all accounts, deserved to be team principal who happened to be female. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> In that regard, I was thrilled. I wanted to see her take the bull by the horns and do something phenomenal. Hmm. She's kind of let me down. Yeah. But what we don't know, truly, is we don't know what their behind-the-scenes operation. Yes, she seems to be... um, rather adept at finding the imaginary Russian bajillionaire. Mm-hmm. She's done that multiple. And, and in a way, it kind of surprises me that this deal was announced with Longbow to finance them and not a Nigerian prince. Also possible. Given the number of fake Russian bajillionaires that she has supposedly had on the hook to fund the team. Right. I, but she it's... hasn't shown the greatest business sense. And, and that's my that, – and maybe that is part of the issue is that you can come up through a team without business acumen and you get stuck in a spot where that's exactly what you need and she's out of her depth. Well, I think the situation is more acute at a smaller team like Sauber. They, they just can't handle bad yeah. decisions. Well, they, and that's they can't the handle bad decisions, but I think there is more weight played or, or placed on the team principal at those teams for business decisions as opposed to strategic and engineering decisions, as opposed to, say, 
Ferrari, which which can bring in Maurizio Riva Bene, whose entire history with motorsport is selling cigarettes, mm-hmm. and have him run the team. Now, granted, we're seeing where that you know, a year down the road where that leads you. But still, I think the team can better absorb somebody who does not have a strong motorsports background because they're, they're such a such a bigger team with a larger support infrastructure and all the other pieces that can better advise direction. Well, I think that we are hitting all around an, a truly universal ultimate business question. Mm-hmm. Are you at the top tiers? Are you a leader of people or do you need to understand and know the product that you are selling or dealing with? Because think, think it through. Um, the, the theory being, if you are a motivator of people, it doesn't matter if you're selling Pepsi or Macintoshes. You can still grow a company because you have to trust the people that are under you that know what they're doing better. But if you are in the weeds and know your product really well, you may or may not have the bandwidth necessarily to know, to to be able to lead the company. Well, I think it may be also along the lines of what may make sense for a Formula One team from a technical, at a technical level, Mm -hmm. may not make sense at a marketing and business level. Which and would, knowing how to make the decisions and how to prioritize. Which would beg the need that Formula One teams would need one of each of those. You need somebody to run the business of your team and someone to run the tech strategy portion, which ought to be the team principal running tech and strategy, but it looks like Monisha is equally involved in the business of the well, team. Well, by comparison, though, what we are seeing at several teams is that that team principal position is either going away or is a bit different in how it works. You know, you've got your technical director mm-hmm. who is handling the technical part, and then you have your principal, or in the case of, say, McLaren, your sporting director who is handling the business and marketing piece. Right. But I think that people are starting to recognize the need to divide the position. Mm-hmm. That, it, yes, it is good to have a face of the team. A, a, a Christian Horner, a Toto yeah. Wolf, a, a, a Frank Williams. And when Frank can't be there, his a deputy, Claire. Mm-hmm. a Claire. You need the face of the team. But you also need that person to also have a technical person and a business person working in tandem so you wind up with a triumvirate more than a single point of yeah. failure you mean possibly a, a non-executive chairman you mean nikki yeah yes so speaking of business stuff while we're on the topic of business things um the future of Sel- silverstone has yes. been up in the air for a while mm-hmm. um what we had known is that Jaguar Land Rover had tendered an offer to purchase the track. We'd also heard, what was it, last late last year that um, the British Grand Prix had done so well that the, the British Racing Drivers Club, which owns the track, didn't feel as much pressure to sell the track. So that has had some impact as well. 
Um, however, the offer from British Land Rover has now, or Jag- Jaguar Land Rover Group, has been out for so long that it's no longer an exclusive offer. I guess there was a, a period of time as part of that offer that Jaguar Land Rover Group came out and said, we're going to put this offer out, and, and while you're considering, you cannot consider any other offers. Mm. And this was agreed to by, by BRDC as they, they did this. Well, that exclusivity deal has now ended, which means BRDC can accept offers from other groups. So one of the groups that has now submitted an offer, actually it was in April, um, Janetta owner Lawrence Tomlinson made a second offer, and this was just before um, members voted on the Jaguar Land Rover deal. Now, the interesting thing here is that about 54% of the own, of the members of the British Racing Drivers Club who have the ability to vote on this were in favor of Jaguar Land Rover buying it. Mm-hmm. But Patrick Allen, who is the managing director for Silverstone, has very, very close ties to the genetic group. Hmm. Close enough ties that as a result he has been placed on a leave of absence to ensure that there can be no undue influence on the deliberations regarding accepting the deal. Wow. Yeah. Now, here's the thing I I have to ask. So there's an exclusivity period where Jaguar says, we're going to give you this really great offer, but Mm -hmm. while we are negotiating, you cannot entertain any other offers, which makes great sense for Tolak jaguar into the process Mm -hmm. but at what point does it become in the interest of the british racing um drivers club to then turn around and go well okay we have this exclusivity we'll just sit on it till it runs out And, and and then we'll publicize the hell out of the fact that we've got an offer and we'll be entertaining more offers on this date well and that's one of the questions. This is something that's been dragging on now for, what, two years? Mm-hmm. Initially, it didn't sound like they had gotten any offers. Right. Nobody expressed any interest. Then Jaguar Land Rover came in with the exclusivity deal. They let that the, the exclusivity part expire, and Janetta comes forward and says, hey, we, we want to put down an offer. And, and according to Autosport, there are a number of possible deals on the table as well. So what all of a sudden triggered other groups saying, hey, maybe we want to get our hands on this? Uh, you're really asking that question? You're asking the what? Two years ago, Silverstone couldn't fill the seats at the British Grand Prix. Two years ago, the British Grand Prix was in question as to whether or not it could continue. That guy that's now the director of Silverstone Racetrack. Patrick Head. Yes. Or uh, not Head. Uh, James Allen. I'm sorry. Not James Allen. Patrick Allen. There you go. There, there was an Allen and a Patrick. We'll get him right eventually, <laughs> but it's Patrick Allen. Okay. He came in and he flipped everything on its head and by every account turned Silverstone Racetrack around, not just for the Formula One race but for multiple races throughout the season he turned it around and made it a viable business which then makes you wonder why brc isn't taking a step back and going is it really in our best interest at this point to sell i don't know i I, there's a part of me that says probably 
had the sale piece up that said, we're kind of tired of having to run this thing. Yeah. And maybe we can come up with a better plan here. Um, it may be why they sat on the Jaguar offer for so long is that they were debating internally as to well, where, whether or not it's still really on the market. Um, but his success, Alan's success, is obviously attracting other people, not to mention the fact that the minute somebody says that they want it, a lot of other people start taking a notice. Yeah. You know, it's it's the shy girl in the corner of the dance. As soon as one boy decides that he wants to dance with her, the other boys start to look at her too. Okay. So more managing. This is personnel managing here. Toto Wolf has come forward. And right after he turned around and said that the sky is blue and water's wet, he said, <laughs> managing our drivers has been taking up a whole lot of time. <laughs> See also, somebody got paid to write this story. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure the reporter walked out and went, well, duh. <laughs> okay, let's review the circumstances. One. You have racing drivers who have who make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Two, you have racing drivers with big personalities. Well, three, we have one with a big personality. I think Nico still has a big personality too. It's just a different kind of big personality. Okay. Three, you have big personality, <clears throat> highly paid racing drivers who are in an active battle for the world championship. Right now. Yes. Four. It is your job to manage that. Well, <laughs> what Toto had to say. Okay. He says, I look back at the first half of the season as positive because winning almost every race is definitely what we had hoped to achieve. But the controversies and rivalries are certainly something that are not always easy to manage. We accept that and have knowledge this is something that comes due to the fact we have number we have two number one drivers who are provided with equal material and equal opportunity. But it consumes a lot of our time, and that could have an effect long term. On a positive note, as long as it doesn't happen every race weekend, it has provided some narrative some of the narrative for this year's championship. My feelings though are clear. I'd rather avoid it and some of the headlines and rather just win the races. But I guess we are in the entertainment industry. <laughs> well, you know, he can complain about it all day long. His sponsors have to be appreciating it. Because here's the thing. We watched it happen last year towards the end of the season. As the driver's championship starts to get locked up, the TV crews don't focus on the front cars as much. Yeah. Oh, if there's not a battle going on for one and two, they start panning down the field to find somebody to put the camera on the car. So while they may not be on track um, notice by the camera crew, by continuing the rivalry, by continuing these big personalities, <coughs> it's getting people to write the stories that get the sponsors on the page and people still looking. Yeah. 
So you can't complain too loudly. Yes, I'm sure Toto, for his personal life, would really like it if his two drivers were besties. And they were like, no, you can go first. No, no, you go first. No, you go first. It will be fine. And trade off one, two throughout the season. You know, how great of a season would that be? No, Lewis suck. Lewis wins the first one. Nico wins the second one. Lewis wins the third one. All odd-numbered races go to you. All even-numbered races go to you. And everybody locks arms and walks off into the sunset. That would suck. <laughs> okay, so let's move on. Moving on. And actually, we're going to go back a little bit. Back to our earlier discussion about the Olympics and all. So... Think about this, okay? What what are the Olympics supposed to be? Actually, you know, before we even get to that, picture in your mind right now the Olympic theme playing. I say picture in your mind because, well, the IOC being the IOC, they won't let us play the Olympic theme because we're not an official partner. So instead, I'll play this instead. I know you have very strong opinions on the IOC, <laughs> honey. I'm not entirely sure that they are, in fact, the League of Super Evil. They may be very close. Um, yes, the IOC will not allow us to play the Olympic theme, um, nor carry the Olympic flag, nor any of the other Olympic iconic iconography. However, wait a minute before you interrupt me and tell me anything else. I will tell you that we are more willing to steal content from other places than we are willing to dance with the IOC because they are more likely to be litigious towards the small bloke in the bird. Not only can you not display a flag or play the IOC's music. The IOC came out before the Olympics, and, and everyone appears to be completely blowing them off. But the IOC came out and said that you can't even use their hashtags in social media. That is like against everything there is about social media. Totally doing it wrong. Yeah, that is like 101 how to screw up social media. You want your hashtags to go viral. That means you want people to use them. That is yeah. the definition of that. Okay, that was not very bright. My personal favorite of the League of Super Evilness of the IOC is the if you are sponsored by a company that is not also sponsoring the Olympics, you have to cover their logo while you compete. But they sponsored you to get you to the Olympics, but you have to pretend that you were unsponsored because they didn't then pay the bribe money to the IOC. Yeah. Just marinate that. So we need to tie this to Formula One. And I'm going to, and, and I actually, there was an article earlier this week. It was, it was a really good article, although I think his points are a bit off over on Autosport about, you know, how Formula One could be an Olympic sport. Okay. So first thought, you're thinking, but it's a motorsport. And why motorsport? What, you know, how, how does that make you an Olympic anything? A couple of things to think about, though. What? First of all, equestrian events are Olympic sports. Most okay, of the motive power— horses do not have— um, they don't have they, they don't have engines, but the motive power and a 
degree of the performance isn't coming from the athlete. It's coming from the horse. Good You're point. relying on the athlete to control the horse. But the motive power is coming from the horse, not the athlete. Yes, but so, equestrian again, events are not – the horse racing is not a, a Olympic sport. Dressage, horse dancing – or I know. Well, yeah. uh, the steeplechase, the horse jumping. So it, to make your comparison, we would have to do car dancing or car jumping. That's a possibility. But okay, okay that you, aside, let, let, let's, let's take that aside. The, um, the Olympic Charter has actually been amended to allow this. In 2007, there was a clause that read, sports, disciplines, or events in which performance depends essentially on mechanical propulsion are not acceptable. That was removed from the charter in 2007. Hmm. The other thing that's well, interesting. I don't know what they removed it to pave the way for. Because I'm sure it was not motorsport. My, my question is it may have had something to do with bicycles, but I don't know. But before you say it, it, it wasn't motorsport. Um, also keep in mind that the way the IOC and the Olympics work is it's basically a consortium of all the various sporting groups in the various countries for the various disciplines that are part of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. In 2013, after um, signing up to the World Anti-Doping Code, the FIA has been granted full recognition status by the IOC after committing to respect the Olympic Charter. So as a governing body, a sports governing body, the FIA is fully recognized by the IOC. Huh. Okay. But here's where things get really sticky. Okay. okay. Sticky me. Number one is the previous um, head of the IOC, Jacques Roga. When he left, he put his foot down and said, absolutely not. There will not be Formula One in the Olympics. So you got to get past that. But then you also have to look at how Formula One works. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's think about this. These are heavily sponsored cars, all of them centered around brands, whether it's the engine brand or the team or the whatever, that may not necessarily currently be sponsors of the olympics and we already know what the ioc's position is about that they carry on the cars additional sponsorships which are probably not sponsors of the olympics so there's that problem but you also have okay the olympics are supposed to be representative they're, they're supposed to be athletes from representing their countries correct there's a lot of drivers from one country or another, but there's not a very diverse base of drivers. Well, beyond that, you have you would have to sort out what country would a team be. So, for example, let's look at oh, I'm just going to spitball here. Mercedes. Mm -hmm. Mercedes is a German car company mm -hmm. with a driver from Great Britain. And another driver who, while hereditarily German, grew up in Monte Carlo. Well, that, that one, you could, I mean, you, could you, say you look at the he number of athletes who, who 
have have bounced around and, and their nationalities are a little fuzzy. That that not a big deal. But better yet, look at Ferrari. You're Italian company with a German driver and a Finnish driver. Yes. What country would win the medal if they medaled? Yeah. And could you have a two-person team like that? Or would it be one-person teams? Think that one through for a mm-hmm. minute. Because the the truth of the matter is we don't, you know, it's not a team sport in terms of the two drivers on the grid. They're not working in tandem like you would think of a relay yeah. or something like that. Um, so would you have single winners and i mean there's there's like some nuances that would be very difficult and here's my question okay formula one's not the only motorsport in the world yep would it not be more olympic-esque if there was a chosen engine and chassis sponsored by the ioc approved by the ioc the olympic chassis the Olympic chassis, and have drivers from cross sport so that you could open this up to the lower formulas, to the Indy cars, to the NASCARs, to all of those other types of drivers. The Le Mans drivers, all of them. uh, World Rally, all of those different drivers, and say, we are now going to determine the best driver in a single type of car and and i think in that respect it's probably it would probably be an event that instead of it being a formula one event mm-hmm. that it be more in line with the the british race of champions right. right actually i think they're just called race of champions which if i recall correctly promotes country versus country competition mm-hmm that might make better sense as a race of champions type of a format than Formula One. I mean, Autosport even goes so far as to say that this should be part of the Formula One calendar for the season. But see, I think that falls apart when you have to start figuring out what countries these people are applied to. Um, Now, my other idea. Okay. If we actually have the ability to have Olympic sports that involve motors... Mm-hmm. Does it not seem like it would be more in line with the idea of the Olympics to look at karting over the pinnacle of motorsport? The concept being that karting to me would be the motorized equivalent of, oh, I don't know, luge. Um, and that kind of an idea of saying these are, these are not, top of they're the top of the karting world but they're not professional professionals i mean nico rosberg and lewis hamilton make bazillions of dollars and while i know there's a loophole in the ioc world they still should be amateurs in my mind it, it hurts my you, heart you that we that have professional the, basketball players and in the hockey Olympics. players too and hockey players that hurts me i won't watch that because i find that that's in violation of but, my view of the but Olympics. where the challenge come comes in is that the olympics are supposed to be the pinnacle of sport mm-hmm. and sporting competition in the various fields 
So truly the way you, you, you make that work is, yes, you have to have Formula One. And since Formula One claims to be the pinnacle of autosport, you can't turn around and say, we're going to go to the card level. But what you should be able to say is anybody who is capable of competing at that level. And I don't even want to say the super license is the best way to make that determination. But if you are capable of competing at that level and you do that through time trials and whatever, to say that these are for whatever format you want to call it, that level of autosport, that, that, that's, that's fine. Whether you're a Formula One driver, GP2, Indy Lights, whatever, doesn't matter. And then the other piece that you could do is make the karting a separate one. Because karting is a very important developmental role, especially in the open-wheel motorsports. Mm -hmm. So why not turn around and have karting be its own, just like, say, you know, slalom and giant slalom? Well, I can't, Downhill, I, you know, it's just a different discipline of motorsport. I could totally be down with that idea. I, I could be down with that idea. I do have one problem with what you just said about what would get chosen as the pinnacle of racing. Because while Formula One is very, very quick to tell you that they are the pinnacle of mm -hmm. motorsport, I have a sneaking feeling that there are other motorsport disciplines that might take umbrage with it. I agree 100%. So you're going to wind up with uh, somebody that I don't even know that's racing in NASCAR saying, well, we're the pinnacle of motorsport. And, and that's why— But I, they don't have a clue how to drive the Formula One car. And, and, and that's why I say you, you come up with the Olympic format car that you have to qualify and regardless of whether you're racing in BTC or you're racing in NASCAR or whatever sprint cars or, or, mm -hmm. or champ car whatever you you if you want to compete in the Olympics you have to qualify in the format car okay and that format car is the same whether you're coming from England or from the United States or Canada or Zimbabwe okay so then why would the argument be for a single-seater open-wheel format car versus closed-wheel stock have car? To be. doesn't have to be. Well, I'm not watching closed-wheel stock car. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested. It depends on how you want the race to race. I mean, and that's the other thing that you can look at is much like in Race of Champions where it is a a mixed format type event where some of it's on dirt, some of it's on tarmac and various other pieces, you could take a car that can handle all of those with that idea being yeah, Formula 1 driver, he has to know how to drive on a Formula One track and a Formula One car, but now we're going to throw in dirt also. And we're going to throw in a little bit of oval also. And we're going to throw in a little bit of this. And it's not a test of who is the best open-wheel driver. It is the test of the, the fastest overall driver. So what this really needs to become is like a decathlon. Yeah, kind of. Well, no, I, I, I'm actually getting pretty no, serious. No, I know. It, it's not a single format car. It isn't. Okay. You take the three, maybe four, maybe, of styles of racing, and you combine them into one event where points are given at each level is death decathlon style. 
where you have a single seater open wheel, you have the, the, the closed wheel stock car, you have the drag racer car, mm-hmm. the best car, the best type of car for the track kind of layout that you're working with. So the drag racer is going to do straight line speed. The, the, you know, the, I don't think you do drag. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm going to just kind of spitballing here. You're going to have a rally portion of it. You have to have a rally mm-hmm. car. Put the dirt, put those things in, all in those different stages, kind of like Tour de France. You have stages yeah. for the process. That way, you look for the best overall racer who is the most adaptable. That yeah. they can drive a single-seater open wheel, and they can drive rally, and they can drive touring car, and they can drive these other types of events. And that way, you don't exclude or show bias to one version of the pinnacle of racing versus another version of the pinnacle of racing. That, that is the Olympic sport I can be down with. Okay. And that's where you add karting. I, well, you I was make it say as part karting. of the de- de- decathlon Well, you racing. can even have karting by itself. But why, it would be like, why, do, why turn around and say that you can't compete in the Olympics because you haven't made it up to the full-size cars? If you're the karting world championship, you're, you're the karting world champion. Why not have karting as its own separate event as well? And they do that for track and field stuff too. So okay. anyway, so that's all we had for Formula One this week. Okay. All right, well, that's it. So like us on Facebook and... <laughs> okay. That's not what you wanted. But that, I, if, if you're ready to wrap the show, I'll <laughs> no. let you wrap the show. <laughs> no, I thought we were going to talk about some of the stuff that we've had in the vault. We were going to go through the closet and pull out a story that we wanted to talk about that we've been holding because of the exciting adventure of Formula One. Well, the exciting adventure of the the, the year we did... Uh, as you recall, a few weeks ago, a few weeks, actually about a month back, two months back, two, two. months back. Yeah, it's been two, two months now. We were gone for two weeks while we went on vacation. Yes. So we want to talk about that a little bit. So if you you only care about the motorsports piece, you can stop now. Hey, thanks for visiting. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> like us on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Leave us a comment. We love to hear from you. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> For everybody that's left, hi. <laughs> um, we headed out on the celebrity solstice, mm-hmm. our second trip on the solstice. The first time in what about five years that we've been on board? Something like that. Um, second trip on the celebrity solstice from Seattle, seven nights up to Alaska, stopping in Ketchikan, Juneau, Skagway. Yes. And uh, Victoria, British Columbia, which I don't think that really counted that stop. Not that we don't like Victoria. We actually like Victoria a lot, but the cruise lines are playing with that stop. So we'll get to that. But uh, spent some time in Seattle. We picked up the Seattle City Pass. Definitely a really good value. Yes. Um, If you haven't looked up what the City Pass does, it includes the aquarium, a harbor cruise, two tickets to the Space Needle, which, by the way, are kind of pricey, Um, AM, PM, for the Space Needle, so you get a day and night view of the from Yeah, the you top. can you can be up there for sunset. Yep. Which is the perfect time. Um it also you can choose to go to the Chihuly Garden. Yeah, which is next door to Space Needle. Right. Um 
Pacific and Science Center, I believe, was also had an admission if you wanted to do that. Yeah, there were a couple that were choices, and the Experience Music Project, which is also a pricey admission. Yes. Um, but if you want to do that and you happen to be a uh, science fiction geek, particularly of Star Trek ilk, um, that is an additional fee, but it was two bucks a person, five bucks a person? Well, right like now that. they're doing the Star they, they rotate that space out. Oh. So right now it's it's Star Trek. There was Battlestar Galactica at one point. They do rotate what sci-fi feature is in there. So okay. right now it is a Star Trek uh, exhibit. So go now because that was really cool. I'm impressed since you're not into Star Trek. Well, I was into one and a half versions of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> there have been nine billion of them. I liked one and a half of them. So we won't get too much into As much as we, we love Seattle, it is one of our favorite cities to visit. Um, we won't get too much into that. We do want to talk about the cruise, though. Now, this is the first time that we got to cruise. We'll put on the old cruise planner hat. Because we have previously cruised out of Seattle. We sailed through the temporary location down in the Sucked. port of Seattle. That's gone. <laughs> um, we have come through the purpose-built cruise terminal uh, right in downtown over by the, the, the ferry pier, which they're not bringing cruise ships into anymore. No. And now the new cruise terminal, purpose-built cruise terminal, down at Pier 90-something. <laughs> I want to say it's 91, 92, but I could be wrong. It's in the 90s. The facility is nice. It's in an awful, awful location. Um, Hard to get to. Traffic is atrocious, especially if there are two ships in there. Um, they're able to clear everything through, but it's just, it's a bad spot. It's the driving up and then trying to get out. Once you can get out of your car... It's yeah. actually pretty simple, but it's the getting from the main road over to the cruise terminal that was ick. It, it backs up all the roads around, not just mm -hmm. not just the cruise terminal. It, it backs up the main uh, Route ninety nine, which is the main through fare through. It backs that up. It backs everything up when there are ships in there. I, I don't know how the folks are tolerating that. And yeah. If you should happen to live in a neighborhood right over there, that's got to be absolutely brutal. True. That being said, it's a nice terminal, great views. Once you get out of your car and load it up and get out of in whichever direction you're headed, it's not too bad. Mm -hmm. um, so sailed up. First stop was Ketchikan, Alaska. Yes. Another one of my favorite ports, by the way. See, I've spent too much time in Ketchikan. I'm, I'm not as impressed with it, um, but we did take the opportunity to uh, take a trip on the Aleutian Ballad. Yes. Which, its claim to fame, if you're a, a fan of the Discovery Show Deadliest Catch, she was featured on Deadliest Catch for a few seasons. They have since taken the ship out of service, completely refitted it, and... I want to say it's it was eight or nine years ago that it was refitted, mm -hmm. but completely refitted it into an excursion boat for tourists. Now, if you are a fan of Deadliest Catch, you will know the Aleutian Ballad because it happens to be featured in the most requested piece of video ever. Yes. There is a rogue wave that hit uh, her in, I think it was the beginning of season two. 
of the of the show um seriously probably should not have survived that rogue wave they were lucky she is she is still floating yes but and and by the way if you haven't seen that video if you go on a trip they've got it on continuous loop over in the galley yeah so you can watch it over and over and over you will not miss it (laughs) nor will they you know they might mention it a few times while they are out um but the the gentleman and husband and wife that own the ship and several previous crab fishermen yeah. actually run the tour. So you're kind of you're getting a very hands-on view of the life. Now they've staged pots and various things that they go fishing for and I mean it's a very staged trip. Yeah, it is. Um, um they pull stuff up, they talk about it, they pass things around, there's hands-on, there are there's great pictures of me holding crab. Um and possibly a prawn, I think. I think I held Hold, a prawn. Yeah. You had a prawn, you had a couple of uh couple of different crabs. There was a box crab and a king crab. I was most upset that they wouldn't let me take the king crab back to the ship and have the chef cook it for me. <laughs> um he was marked for saving, unfortunately. Um it was starfish. We got to hold starfish. Um, I mean, it was all sorts of cool things. We did not touch the octopus. Which is good because they're really just big bags of snot. Yeah. But that wasn't what was really cool about that trip. What was really interesting is they've got a deal with um, a local Indian reservation. They're, it's the only Indian reservation with land rights that extend over water. Mm-hmm. So they can sail into, into the reservation and they can – bring up the pot so that you can see what they're doing but it's also a bald eagle sanctuary and i think naturally has become one because the uh tribe they're not overfishing their own waters so the fishing is really good and apparently bald eagles from the talk with brent nixon the naturalist on board the ship um bald eagles are very opportunistic feeders and so I, yeah. I don't believe this is a declared sanctuary as much as it is a really great feeding ground and so thus a breeding ground, mm-hmm. so thus lots of bald eagles. Um, so what the, the, the uh, Lucian Ballard does is they go out and they'll throw, okay, they chum some herring yeah, in the water. Yeah, some herring. Um, they throw some herring in the water and all of a sudden about 50 bald eagles come dive bombing the ship. Every single direction, every it is absolutely spectacular. In fact, it is so spectacular and so overwhelming. They say that if you do not get a picture of a bald eagle, um, you should Give turn in your camera pictures. and never take another picture again because yeah. you are obviously unworthy. <laughs> um, I think I counted 300 pictures that I took by myself of bald eagles in flight or yeah. on their nest <laughs> or in trees, but mostly in flight. I think you were double that at least. E- easily, easily before I just put it down and said, enough. <laughs> and that I think was the really, um, I think that that was the part I never thought would ever happen was that I would have seen so many bald eagles that I would get to the point of going, Oh. oh, look, a bald eagle. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. 
all right, I'm going to go sit down again because they're just going to fly back over again. Um, But it was overwhelmingly cool. Yeah, very good trip. We, we strongly recommend, if you find yourself in Ketchikan, to head out uh, on the Aleutian Ballad. The, the crew's fantastic. Very, very interested in sharing everything that they can and making sure that the, the folks on board are nice and comfortable. This is not the dirty crab boat anymore. This yeah. is stadium-style seating. with, and We know it's cold out, so we've got heaters over the seats and we've got stadium jackets so you can stay warm and bundle up with those as well and hot chocolate and yeah and good hot chocolate yeah um they also have a gift shop with all sorts of things that have their logo on them which was which was nice it was a nice little binning but you go into their galley you get some uh hot chocolate or some coffee you know wear the giant coat you stay pretty warm because it was kind of chilly we were there it was chilly it was Next stop was Juno, Juno Alaska, which um, for Celebrity Solstice, because of her size, um, she alternates with, I believe it was New Amsterdam, either being at the farthest pier from downtown or uh, anchoring in the middle of the harbor and tendering. Mm-hmm. Um, it does. It looks like they, they've had some issues with some of the, the cruise ship piers out there. They're not allowing as many ships to tie up as they used to, which on one hand is a good thing, and on the other, well, you got a tender. Mm-hmm. Um, but tender brings you right down into downtown, right in the middle. Uh, that trip, we had an excursion set up with our friends over at Shore Trip, as we normally do, but weather tried to conspire against us. Did. Um, now, this was the first time that we took the boy mm-hmm. to Alaska, so we did you know splurge and do the big helicopter tour and i had booked the helicopter tour with a dog sled trip yes and with that um the fog rolled into juno now what we did not know at the time which we have now learned is there are three companies that do helicopter tours in juno two of them fly out of juno's airport and one of them flies out of the town that's out of douglas douglas which is the town across the bay yes um so when there is fog, it is more likely to be at the airport. And the helicopter company out of Douglas tends to be able to operate longer. Well, after some brief disappointment on a cancellation out of the airport tour, we wound up being able to reschedule with a different company and as we say, make it happen. Yeah, Era Aviation is the one that is on the other side. Um, and I don't remember off the top of my head the other two. I knew them, and, and they just ran away from me. But Era Aviation was is the one that's over in Douglas that managed to accompany us or, or accommodate us at the very last minute. Um, that is all that they really do at this point are these helicopter tours. Uh, six or eight helicopters at once go off in this sky train mm-hmm. over the harbor and over to the douglas glacier norris glacier norris. over to nor to norris glacier where and they kept saying to us you're going to see this camp out in the distance and it's going to look like this small thing and we're going to get closer and closer and it's just going to be huge and they were right it's a really really big camp there's probably a couple hundred dogs there they are alaskan Malamutes. No, they're not Malamutes. Um, they are Alaskan they, Huskies. 
as opposed to Siberian Huskies. Right. Because they're technically mutts. They're mutts. They're smaller than Siberian Huskies. That was the key thing as to why they're Alaskan as opposed to Siberian. Um, but they are Alaskan Huskies. Um, they are faster. Faster, smaller, lighter, and basically spend their entire time either on the glacier or in the snow. Yes. Now, they don't use Malamutes because Malamutes, however, are however long, large and capable of pulling great weight, um, are rather lazy dogs. <laughs> yeah. Um, they don't use Siberian Husties because they have termed them in Iditarod, because these are Iditarod-level dogs. Yes. Um, in Iditarod terms, they call Siberian Huskies Sloberian Huskies. <laughs> they are too slow for the Iditarod. Now, we got up on our dog sled to a whopping, and I know this is nose-bleeding speed, of five miles per hour. <laughs> but Iditarod speeds are a lot closer to 50 miles per hour. So you can s- just tell right there that there's a big difference. Yeah. Um, the dogs are named. They're well cared for. They wear little booties. They do. I was I was really kind of stunned by the booties, but they are standing on ice all day long, and they don't want cracked and frozen paws. But they have little booties on. Our dog would never tolerate booties like that. No. Um, but uh, we don't get to meet the dogs until after you ride in the thing. Mm-hmm. But we all got to take turns working the back brakes of the dog sled. Essentially, we drove a dog sled. Yeah. Um, which was fun. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, no, it was It was a very great excursion, and the scenery is incredible. Oh, Absolutely incredible. Then last stop was Skagway, where we took a ride on the famed White Pass and Yukon route. Yes. Now, we did not go all the way to the end of the line. No. But we did go up into uh, British Columbia right at the border and then take it. Well, we took the bus up and then the train back down. Okay, but first, before you can talk about the train, you have to talk about the bus trip because that was our first and only encounter with... A bear. A bear. Who was eating dandelions on because, the side of the road? Because apparently, dandelions are like pot to bears. Yeah, they they get high off of them. They get drunk off them. They get goofy off of them, and they love them. Yeah, um, and you know, for the years and years that you always hear about, oh, the bears and the salmon, the bears and the salmon, the bears and the salmon. Apparently, because they are omnivorous animals, they eat a lot more greens than we realize. Yeah. Uh, yes, they eat the salmon and when the salmon run, but when the salmon aren't running, they're eating greens. Um, and the green of choice is dandelions. Because it makes them drunk. So I'm surprised that we don't have more bear in our next door neighbor's yard. Maybe we do. We just haven't seen them. We should look more. <laughs> <laughs> um, fun facts about bears that I feel the need to share. Okay. They don't hibernate. Okay. Did you know that? They just sleep a long time? Well, it's not technically a hibernation. Yes, they can. They do sleep. They go into a twilight state. But they do get up because they don't do certain things in their dens like poop. Yes. So they get up throughout that process and leave to do their business. Or find just, you know, a different part of the den. Yeah. Where folks aren't are. Bears aren't <laughs> are. <laughs> um, but there are... 
what was it, only four or five major categories of bears. Koala is not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case you were curious. Um, Three of those types of bears do live in Alaska. We saw an Alaskan black bear, even though he was brown. So the color, there is a brown bear and a black bear. They are different bears, um, and they can be either color, which was very confusing to me. Yeah, that's a bit odd. Um, We did not see a polar bear, by the way. No. Um, That's my fun facts. I wasn't going to bore you with my fun facts. Okay. Well, you know, the other things that that are worth highlighting, and and it's a benefit of, because I think he only works celebrity. Mm-hmm. But a benefit of taking celebrity up to Alaska, if you manage to get on the right trip, is one of their nat- naturalists who is hired just for Alaska, Brent Nixon. Yes. He is entertaining. He is extremely knowledgeable and a really nice guy. Yes. And he is now traveling with his wife, who uh, goes by Miss Amanda, to talk about history, where Brent's talking about the wildlife Um both shows are worth taking the time to see. They're, they're doing stuff throughout the entire trip. Plus, Brent narrates when you go through the glaciers and stuff like that. He does some of that stuff, too. Um, he doesn't talk about his kayak journal as much. No, he was. he's much more... He's a different guy than he was the first time we met Brent in 2008. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he... He definitely, he's, he's done a lot of kayaking around the shores of Alaska. He works for, works with the National Geographic. Um, he works with a lot of the different scientific um, research firms. Yeah. Um, he did talks on bears, eagles, whales, um, Alaska in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another one he did that I forgot. He did multiples of them, and then um, Miss there was Ama- one on killer whales, which or, or orcas, as opposed to his one on the rest of the whales. Right, orcas were separate. Um, and then Miss Amanda Fairchild, um, who is an accomplished musician, historian, storyteller, um, she would do things on the various towns that we would go to. So mm-hmm. she did a Ketchikan, uh, Juno, a Skagway talk. Um, and then she did uh, another one on the the Yukon, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Um, her thing about Skagway was fascinating because it was Skagway is such a gateway to the gold rush, and so she spent a lot of time talking about the Chilkoot t- Trail, Chilkoot Chilkoot Trail, where people would they could get as far by boat to Skagway, but then they had to take everything by hand. Mm-hmm. up this trail another like 30 days i mean just to get into the yukon which included up basically a stairway that for a while was just a solid pack of people mm-hmm. that if you got out you weren't getting back into this line to climb up the mountain once you got up to the top there was a giant lake that you had to build your own boat to get across right to then get over into Canada where you had to prove that you had all the supplies you needed to survive. Because you had to carry a thousand pounds, which was a year's worth of of supplies per person in your group. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was to get entry into the Yukon. And 
the the heartbreaking piece of the whole story was that by the time the person did all of that, got all of that stuff there, they got all the way in the Yukon to find out that there was no gold left. Yeah. Um, the only the people that found gold originally ever made any money on that gold rush. So the Yukon and White River Pass route, the railroad, follows the original Chilku Trail. Correct. And was built to haul all of these prospectors up into the Yukon so that they could go foraging for gold. But it was also completed after the gold was done. Yes. And after the rush had ended. Yes. But it is a narrow gauge railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, stunning views. Breathtaking views. Um, kind of happy in some regards that we didn't see the bridges we were going over until we had already gone over them. <laughs> some of the tallest trestle bridges that you will ever see. Um, all hanging off the sides of mountains. Yes. Um, but it was very, very beautiful. Downtown Skagway is actually kind of a cute little area. Yeah, it's an okay area. I, I mean, mean we are talking about a town of 800 people. Mm-hmm. Um, the year-round residence is 800. Um, it swells to a blisteringly metropolis of like 2,500 in the summer of but residents. It, but it is also one of the few Alaskan towns with a road connection to the U.S. Correct. So you can drive. Through Canada, but uh, through Canada and into greater the continental United States. And that also ended up killing a lot of the rush trade once they completed that road. Because right. they didn't need all the shipping. They didn't need the rail line at that point because they could just drive in instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so we left Skagway and went to Victoria, British Columbia. Now, we arrived in Victoria at about 5, 6 o'clock in the evening. Mm-hmm. And On we, the last night of the cruise. And we left at 11 o'clock at night. You can do the math. We were there for a very short period of time. In a time frame that... Things weren't really open. Yeah. Now, you're asking yourself, why? Why did we not spend a day in Victoria? I'm still kind of asking myself that. I I mean, I, I get the idea that the law says that they have to stop in Canada. Mm. But why not maximize that stop, especially given... We're not talking about Ensenada, Mexico. <laughs> There are things to do and things that you would want to see in Victoria. It's a nice town. It's a nice island. So why turn around and cut this trip, cut this stop the way they did, as opposed to if it was Ensenada, Mexico? Well, I can answer your question for you. You're just not going to like the answer. Money? Money. It's port taxes in Victoria are high. And that's, that's the reality of it. It's how long they spend in port. And the timing that they spend in port, because to get in at 8 o'clock in the morning and leave at 6 o'clock in the afternoon is a longer stint in port, and it's at prime rates yeah. as opposed to off-prime rates. And then we came back to Seattle. And uh, stayed in a right in downtown with a great view, and I'm guessing at this point that view is now gone because of the construction that's going on, but had a great view of the Space Needle. Um 
spent the time watching sunset at the top of the Space Needle. Mm-hmm. Definitely, if you get the chance to do that, it, it's worth it. The weather was crystal clear for Seattle. Probably was, the best weather in Seattle I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I have on my screensaver at my office the picture I took of um, Mount Rainier. Rainier. Wow, it just lost. Ooh, big one. Um, okay, for for those of you in Seattle. <laughs> that's Tim Taylor, care of Tool Time. P.O. Box 3273. <laughs> I have moments. Um, I, I took a, a photo of, the, of Mount Rainier at sunset. The snow on the mountain is pink. Yep. Because of the sunset. And it downtown Seattle with the lights coming on mm-hmm. and this this mountain floating in the background because it is so far away, and that is my screen. That is my uh, background on my computer at my office. And people walk by my desk and go, "Where's that?" <laughs> <laughs> so people of Seattle, I may forget the name of the mountain every so often, but there are other people that can't recognize your city, and they need the letter more than me. Other than that, you know, we did take our son on the Seattle Underground Tour. If you have not done it, it is something you need to do. Now, they've changed the tour since the last time we were on. The last time we were on was several years ago. Um, it is not quite as adult They have a different version that's the adult version. Okay, maybe that's the one. Yeah. Um, we, they had not separated it before. It used to say not for yeah. children. Um, they, they are now much more family-friendly during certain ones, and then they get bodier. And by body, I mean body, but not 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 raunchy. Yeah, not X-rated. Probably more PG thirteen. The truth is, though, the history of Seattle is R-rated. It is, and it's one of these things that, as you hear the stories, it's you just shake your head in disbelief that a city was created under these pretenses, well, and in true. this location. True. Now. As a result of doing this tour for the second time, quite frankly, I the gentleman that started the tour, the historian that did a lot of the research, um, that wrote it. Bill he, Seidel? Bill Seidel. He wrote a book called Sons of the Prophets, and not prophets. It's prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Yes. And the premise of the book is that Seattle is entirely built on fortune hunters. Mm-hmm. And people who are were were willing to sell their own mothers for a penny, and in many cases they did. They did. Um, it is fascinating. I will tell you that the tour is less dry. He is a historian by nature. Mm-hmm. He it is self published for a reason. <laughs> um, I'm not encouraging everybody to run out and buy it. It's not the page turner I was hoping it would be, but the detail level in it is phenomenal and trying to understand how all of these little stories in the tour start to fit together in the big picture Mm. is very cool um seattle is a fascinating town and understanding how she was built what the there is a, a monument in seattle to the the fathers of seattle and he goes through who they were and what they brought to the table and and you might not want to bring them home to, for family dinner. <laughs> um, I'm sure that they died respectable rich men. Some did, some didn't. But they didn't start out that way. 
and the Seattle-Tacoma argument dates back to the railroad in the 1800s. I believe it. And it was looking for the terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad, um, or the Great Northern Railroad. Great Northern. Great Northern Railroad. And where the terminus was going to be started the rivalry between Seattle and Tacoma, and for every odd against them, Seattle won, and Tacoma got the terminus. But Seattle got the the business. Mm. I mean, that, that nuance is fascinating. So... I guess I wasn't recommending it, but I do if you're interested in that type of thing. But just expect it to be dry. All righty. Here, read this dry book. Go for it. <laughs> so real quick on the solstice, like I mentioned, second time that, that we have been on the solstice. Uh, the first time was before she actually went into real service. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of the things that we loved are still there. Celebrity is changing some policies that I'm not quite sure I like. We're going to see how it plays out over the coming years. Um, it looks like they may be going to that more pay-to-play type of an environment that some of the other cruise lines have adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they're going to stay with the One thing we've seen with Celebrity is that they will try stuff and they will – wait for the feedback to come in and they will make changes based on the feedback we've seen that in the past so that's my question is is this something that they were trying because they haven't done this in the past Mm -hmm. is this something that they were trying and are waiting to see what whether the feedback is that people are going to tolerate it or is something else at afoot here and we don't know yet yeah um it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how things change over time um, but all in all, it was a very good cruise. Thoroughly enjoyed our time on board for the vacation. I think, um, as far as a family trip goes, the boy enjoyed his first foray into Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was outstanding. Would do it again. What, what did we say? We were on a eight year tour. That's what it seems like every eight years we end up going back to Alaska. Which is a good thing because the Northern Lights are currently at a peak and they peak every 10 years. Mm-hmm. So Brent advised us to wait about 10 more years because we were talking about going further north yeah. in Alaska. And so the next time we do this, that is our goal. We will go further. Um, we have not made it to Anchorage yet. We have not made it to Denali. We need to do those things. All right. Now you can like us on Facebook. Yeah, now like us on Facebook uh, over at The Bloke and the Bird. Um, what are your thoughts on, uh, well, sh- motorsports and the Olympics? <laughs> Since we spent a good amount of time talking about it, what are your thoughts on that? Or you can leave a comment over at uh, thebloakandthebird.com. We probably won't mention the Olympics themselves just because, you know, IOC and League of Super Evil and all of that stuff. <laughs> but on that note, I think it's time to cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. 
Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.